Hello, my friends. I'm glad you are joining me for this bonus episode of Jackie Just Chatters. Recently, the history lover me was treated to a tingle. I was sent a story that had me blinking and asking, WTF? The stranger shared his tale of a secret military sub-branch that I'd never heard of. Now, I will be honest, I am not a military expert. For some people, that is their history speciality. Not mine. But still, I felt like I should have known about this group. My first thought was, ooh. The second one was, maybe this is all BS. So I did some research. Stay tuned to find out what I discovered. Welcome to Jackie Just Chatters. By sharing people's stories, I strive to generate laughter, inspiration, maybe help you escape from the stressful world. I am your hostess, Jackie Lentz, who's still figuring out her own story. This podcast comes out every other Thursday. I can be found wherever you get your podcast or on YouTube. I'd be most grateful if you left me some stars or a review and subscribe if you never want to miss an episode. Thank you for listening and sharing. Welcome back. I won't tease you any longer. A writer named Tom Henning penned a story about his time with the United States Air Force Security Service and a tour at a top secret base. Having never heard of this security service, I went to work. I will leave links to my sites in my episode notes for those who are interested. This group was real. According to a thesis paper on the subject from Philip Shackelford, he had this to say, The United States Air Force Security Service, created in 1948, was the first signals intelligence organization to be created post-World War II and played an integral role in Cold War intelligence gathering. Indeed, despite its relatively young age compared to its Army and Navy counterparts, the USAFSS soon became the premier agency for signals intelligence in the early Cold War and was responsible for hundreds of secret listening posts around the world. In fact, another source stated that during the security service's existence, more than 85% of the U.S. government's usable intelligence came from the National Security Agency, of which the security service was the largest component. These people were good at keeping secrets. Not only was it their job, but I don't know how many people know about the going-ons of this group even today. It's a heck of a secret. One famous incident you may have heard of, though, Tom mentions it in his story, so I'm not going to steal his thunder here. Okay, they were basically part of the spy machine, so what? Here are some of the historical events they provided key intelligence for. The Korean War, the Cuban Missile Crisis, the Vietnam War, and generally whatever the commies were up to during the Cold War. Okay, time to move on to Tom's story. Titled, Moving to a Ghost Squadron. I left my hometown, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and boarded a plane to go to Air Force Boot Camp in San Antonio, Texas. Then I was on to San Angelo, Texas for tech school. After that, I flew to McGuire Air Force Base in New Jersey and boarded a plane that first landed in Harmon, Newfoundland, then Shannon, Ireland, 
then finally Presswick, Scotland. From there, a jeep took me to Royal Air Force Station, Kirk Newton, Scotland. If you visit the area around Kirk Newton, Scotland today, you would never know that on the outskirts of the small town, a top-secret airbase once stood called the 6952nd Radio Squadron Mobile. Long ago, it was the home of hundreds of airmen of the United States Air Force Security Service and an outpost of the Cold War. Today, neat suburban homes and a small RAF glider base occupied the site. Rows of modern homes have replaced the military barracks that once stood there. The Quonset huts and buildings that housed the secret operations of the airbase have vanished. The wind still blows cold from the nearby Pentland Hills, and if you listen closely, you can hear the whispered voices of the past quietly flowing over the land. The ghostly sounds of barracks talk and the sounds of airmen mustering to formation and marching off to duty rustle in the wind. Royal Air Force Base Kirk Newton, Scotland, was known as USA-55. It was formed by the U.S. Air Force and Central Intelligence Agency in the 1950s, and in 1966, it was gone. Like the mythical village of Brigadoon in Scotland lore, which local inhabitants say appears once every hundred years, the U.S. Air Force Base appeared and then vanished from the hills of Scotland. Some say the unit, known to the citizens in the area as the Ghost Squadron, never existed. But we who were there know differently. Even though we sometimes struggled with the code of silence we undertook as the silent warriors of the security service, today we recall the reality of the missions we undertook during the Cold War. Those of us who still survive have dim recollections and distant memories of our experience. Our memories sometimes fail us. Our secret vows to never discuss what we did there are still with us. We choose to forget and move on. We leave no footprints on the sands of history, just this short tale of our youthful days in the shadows and sun. In order to describe for posterity our military experience on the mythical airbase, we must revisit the era of the Cold War. In the years following World War II, Children of the post-war years attended school much the way school children attend school today. But their drills and games at that time were quite different from the video games and activities of today. From time to time, we underwent air raid drills called duck and cover. We climbed under our classroom desks to protect us from the potential nuclear attacks from the Soviet Union. World War II left a deep impression on our parents' generation and, as youth, many of us became patriotic citizens. We knew that some countries in the world wanted our destruction, even though most of us hadn't traveled very far from our neighborhoods. Our heroes were comic book superheroes and Western cowboys. There was no doubt some of us would become soldiers and defenders of our country when we grew up. 
Eisenhower was president in the 1950s when we undertook a major shock. The Soviet Union launched a satellite into orbit called Sputnik. The Soviet Union was expanding into outer space and had joined forces with communist China. They vowed to bury us. I joined the U.S. Air Force in 1959. It wouldn't be long after that, in 1960, when the Soviet Union shot down one of our planes flying over their territory. The U-2, flown by Gary Powers, was a spy plane whose mission was to photograph military installations behind the Iron Curtain, as it was then called. It wasn't the first time our planes were shot down. Many security service and Air Force personnel lost their lives during the Cold War. During the Cold War, the U.S. had developed a series of treaties with countries surrounding the Soviet Union that enabled the military to construct or lease numerous military installations and air bases surrounding the Soviet Union and Communist China. From these bases, the military monitored the potential communist enemies, offered protection to their allies, and conducted espionage to learn the capabilities and intentions of the enemy. During the early years of the Cold War, these listening posts and airborne security services flights were the main source of military intelligence about the Soviet Union and Communist China. When I arrived at Royal Air Force Station Kirk Newton on a cold autumn day in September 1960, I was assigned to a Kunset hut transit barracks heated by potbelly stoves until I was cleared and moved again to a World War II era barracks. The next day, I reported to the officer of the day who gave me a package of documents and directions to check in with the personnel officer, the financial officer, the medical officer, the post office, and the operations officer who would assign me to a flight. Four flights made up the radio squadron mobile. I was assigned to Delta Flight. After clearing the base, I moved into the H-frame barracks in an unclassified area on the periphery of the base. Four open bays of the H-frame were connected by a latrine and shower that served the roughly 100 men assigned to each barracks. Each double bunk bed in each bay had open wall hangers for uniforms and a trunk to store personal items. Four potbelly stoves heated the bay. These barracks on the base had housed Italian and German prisoners of war during World War II. For the next three years, there was to be no privacy in our living quarters. Daily life on the base consisted of rotational duty assignment, of four-day shifts, four swing shifts, four night shifts, and four days off. Operations were seven days a week, 24 hours a day. Off-duty activities included base athletics, being trucked to rifle range qualifications at nearby British Army Draghorn Barracks, movie theater, post office, laundry, and airmen's club activities. Many airmen went to nearby Edinburgh during their off-duty hours, and some moved into cold, drafty apartments in Edinburgh. During the Berlin Crisis and Cuban Missile Crisis, there were base alerts, and we were assigned to patrol different areas of the base and support the air police responsible for base defense. On one occasion, protesters marched on the base, 
but no injuries resulted from the protest. The same kind of protests and marches occurred on several U.S. military bases during this time, including the nearby Holy Lock U.S. Navy submarine base. I was selected Airman of the Month and was sent to Mattingly Hall, Cambridge University, to attend a course on international economics and the emerging common market. It was a life-changing event for me. After that experience, I was certain that I would attend college after military service. During my off-duty time, I attended the Overseas University of Maryland University College courses and completed a year of Russian language and other courses. I was also fortunate to have traveled to Holland, Belgium, Germany, Denmark, Sweden, England, and France during my time in Europe. It would be the first of many trips to Europe. When the U.S. Air Force ended their mission at RAF Kirk Newton, the local newspapers called us the Ghost Squadron. Many of the airmen I served with went on to serve in the Vietnam War, and some made the U.S. Air Force their career. I honor their memory and their service. When I left RAF Kirk Newton in 1963, I had been away from home for three years. Many things had changed and an uncertain future awaited me. I flew back home and saw the Statue of Liberty below me as we flew over New York City. I landed back at McGuire Air Force Base, and after being discharged, flew back home to Pittsburgh. Little things struck me. When I left, all telephones were black. Now they were in colors. Car designs had changed. I didn't know what a hoagie was. I fulfilled my goal of college by attending Penn State upon my return. I earned a bachelor's degree in political science and Russian area studies and a master's degree in higher education. Afterwards, I began a rewarding career with IBM. During my time with the company, I was involved with top-secret Department of Defense contract programs, national aeronautics and space programs, and other government agency programs. In my last IBM assignments, I served as a lobbyist, bringing back full circle with those Cold War nations, and conducted international business in the former Soviet Union. In my early years, I felt I was in perpetual motion. Maybe your younger years were too. Under the name T.H. Henning, Tom has authored and published five books of poetry, two nonfiction, and two fiction books. One of his fiction novels is called The Scotland Spy. That's not a big surprise, is it? And one of his nonfiction works is Memoirs of a Defense Contractors. I'll have all the works listed in the episode notes. And to finish off, this is a cute little history tidbit I found. This comes from the Scottish Daily Mail, and it was written about the American invasion that took place during the late 50s and 60s in Scotland. The marriage rate at Kirk Newton was ranked as one of the highest among United States Air Force bases in any part of the world. 
One of the colonels even stated, We estimate that 80% of the eligible single men who came to us from the States married local girls. Most of them took their wives back home after their tour of duty ended. But some have come back for good with their families and have settled down as civilians in the Edinburgh area. (laughs) There is just something about the lure of a Scottish lass. Thanks for listening to this trip back in time. Until next time, I wish you well. Thank you.